the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Hey, ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. Like every parent says, I love my kids. It can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought <laughs> differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? So there's so much to parenting these days. And unfortunately, it's the one really big, important job in life where a lot like marriage, you don't get a handbook. There's no manual. There's no advanced pre-qualifications. Uh, you just kind of dive in and you go. And if you came, fortunately, from a good, strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you, you can kind of model your parenting skills after them. And if you didn't, well, you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite, right? But in the end, some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That coincidentally is the title of a new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, thanks. It's great to be with you. I, I think of the, the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment when we talk about this, I think, you know, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially, um, you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, you have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects. There are benefits. There, are, I mean, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know. The, the the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up, but we don't often stop to really ask ourselves. What exactly were those lessons, and what was good about them, and what what would I like to change about them? And 
you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question. So we, we come out of our homes with an, an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles and each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, well, for example, I was the avoider parent, and so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, that we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connection. We were never asked about feelings as as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way. And I think most avoider parents, male or female, are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylan, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? <laughs> well, I like your optimistic start. <laughs> did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't, because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is, is that uh, pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they, they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep, every, you know, just, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylon, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers and they can, the kids can get by with stuff and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer um, what you said earlier in your introduction. Uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept and people do need a good balance of tough and tender or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner. You know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation? And, you know, how do you like to decorate the house? And where do you want to live? And how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally. But I would suspect there are few that would sit down and of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style. You know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are, are 
polar opposites. And as you've suggested by the title of the book and in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are have, you know, high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a, you know, a positive way that your spouse would like to be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect, and Mylon was too free-spirited and, you know, unable to set those boundaries. But, um, you know, the vacillator parent is the third one, and... You know, their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection, and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels a sense of... Um, present, but the, but the parent exactly, is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are... In contrast to a secure attachment style, you mentioned in your intro that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kids. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, that, that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a, a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking 
thinking about these styles here, I, I like what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoiders less you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced, you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. Yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these lifestyles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief? And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And, and, and their world is either good or bad. Yeah. It's just all good or all bad. And then that lifestyle that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very 
unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home, and I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to... Uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting styles, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wish we would have used that in the book. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds and and they're fussier, and and yet if they're put into the same plan as as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards, but different approaches to each child. Needs to be a lot of flexibility then, because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true, and... You know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that. But in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known. And, you know, we ask a question in our seminars. How many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were, and again, there's, a, there's a, just a minority of people who raise their hands. And so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved. And um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, then we're, we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a Even book. awareness. And awareness. That's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider. And my last, our fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just 
at a higher level. And I would suspect, too, here in the end, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids. And obviously that number and time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, But that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time to get better. Um, There's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it, it will be adequate. Uh, we're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many have you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up. You know, I, I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also, more information on both the ministry of Mylon and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Down through the years that this program has been on the air, and I will put in a disclaimer here that I started the show when I was about four, uh, I had the pleasure on many, many occasions uh, to have Zig Ziglar as a guest on this program. And of course, uh, uh, Zig, always the ultimate in brightening your day, even if you were having a heck of a day. Zig knew how to bring a positive outlook on things that took you back to the stuff that was important and brought that strong biblical perspective into the importance of having the right attitude before God. And certainly, he impacted the lives of literally millions of people. One would think that the ultimate in having the right attitude and growing up to be the right kind of person, so to speak, in God's eyes, would be anybody who would grow up in the household of Zig Ziglar and uh, the redhead, as he used to affectionately refer to her as. Well, my next guest has got a bit of a different story, an eye-opener to be sure. She is the youngest daughter of Zig Ziglar, Julie Ziglar Norman. She joins us tonight to talk about not only the experiences of growing up Ziglar, but also the incredible walk that she has been through and the pathway that God has taken her down. All detailed inside of the pages of a new book called Growing Up Ziglar, A Daughter's Broken Journey from Heartache to Hope. And Julie, great to have you on the program. Craig, thank you for having me, and I'm glad to know that uh, you're very familiar and personally know my dad. Your dad was a tremendous man, and uh, we always delighted when we knew that he was going to be either on a book tour or coming to the San Francisco Bay Area for one of the many uh, motivational seminars that he was an important part of, that he would either drop by in studio on a couple of occasions or join us by phone for an interview, and that's why I've got to tell you, Julie, remembering your dad and knowing how encouraging he was to so many of us, when I saw the subtitle of the book, I thought, well, my goodness. <laughs> and at first I thought I, I got confused with your sister, Susan, and I oh, thought, yeah. well, maybe this is a book about 
the 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 story of the challenges that your sister went through uh, facing a pulmonary disease for her entire life. And then when I got under the book and realized, oh, no, wait, this is a different daughter. <laughs> I got to tell you, I, 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 I was a bit flabbergasted, as I suppose a lot of your readers will be. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's not what you'd expect from a daughter of Ziggs. And and that's why I worked so hard to hide uh, the kind of lifestyle I was leading, because uh, I, I admire and love and adore my father. And there was I didn't want to hurt him or embarrass him or be ashamed to him. And uh, yet I had this whole separate life uh, because I was really good at putting on a positive face in front of my parents. You characterize very early on inside the pages of Growing Up Ziegler having to live with a life of regret and shame and guilt and grief and pain and depression. And many, many folks have got to wonder, well, my goodness, what was going on? Oh, there was so much going on. And, you know, it started, Craig, I mean, it, it started with just a, uh, a move to Dallas, Texas from Columbia, South Carolina. And the change of pace was so drastic. The things the kids were doing here were things I never even heard of. But it really started with a uh, jealous cheerleader whose ex-boyfriend got a little crush on me she decided to start a rumor about me and it took such hold and such root that none of the good kids would have anything to do with me and um, ultimately I ended up running with the the kids who uh, were in a lot of trouble and I made a lot of bad choices and I I earned that bad reputation I'd been wrongly given and that's when I started from the time I was 13 uh, I was doing things that I knew my, my parents wouldn't approve of, but I was such a good um, person at pretending like things were okay. I made good grades. I was never late. I wasn't rebellious, rude. I didn't act out in any way. Um, I was responsible. They just didn't have a clue what I was doing when I left the house. Oh, a lot of us do that, don't we? I mean, your case is so. perhaps uh, slightly different in the sense that you were trying to keep a lot of this from a, a very positive, very famous father. Yes. Uh, and yet a lot of us, I think, when you talk about the arena of, of wrong choices, whether we talk mm -hmm. about the wrong choices that took place in our life before we made a commitment to Christ, or even sometimes the bad choices that we make after we come to the Lord, you know, that sense of we, we know to do good and yet we do it not. Right. And that was my big problem. I continued to do that, which I did not want to do. Even after I met the Lord at a uh, Bill Gothard seminar, Dad actually sent his girls to a Bill Gothard seminar before he became a Christian because he heard it was a good, good seminar. You know, I, re I remember those back in the 1970s. Yes. I went to one up, uh, I forget where it was now, it was Bill Gothard's Institute in Basic Youth Conflict. Conflict, that's right. Um, that's right. And, and God bless them for what they were doing and speaking truth into the lives of young people. And I, you know, I guess in the end, a lot of this comes down to even when you've got a, a famous father, and this is true in your case, or for someone maybe that grows up as a pastor's kid, I guess a lot of it ultimately comes down to the kind of choices that we make for ourselves, doesn't it? Right. And the ability to overcome overcome the problems has to do with accepting responsibility for each and every one of those choices. You can't lay blame, you know, until you... I mean, how can we be forgiven for something we won't even admit? 
uh, admit responsibility for. And uh, a big part of my book is about that. It's about God. I mean, he was so kind to me to reveal to me in in a timely way that I could one by one let go of the things that had become uh, had such a stronghold on my life um, so that I could be his and so that I could serve him and glorify him even after all of that I mean these shame my shameful behavior and and to have parents who from the generation they come from who stand behind me and I, every time my mother says and I gave your book to so and so and Jeannie got one I'm like it is just it you can't imagine what that does to my heart because there I am revealing um, you know this really sad um, background of bad choices and yet my parents are so proud of where God has taken me today that they are, you know, they are open to sharing anything uh, that will help others. And did, I'm proud to be a part of that legacy that my dad began. Did you have to work hard, Julie, to hide a lot of this? And I ask that question because, you know, on the surface, some might think, well, that's easy. You know, her dad is a world famous motivational speaker and book author and traveling to the country and out of town all the time. And yet I always had the impression when, when your dad would join me on this program, so many of the references that he would share and examples when he talked about positive thinking and, and keeping your, your life in line with the teachings of God's word and keeping mm-hmm. the right attitude to, to glorify God, he would refer back to family so often. And the redhead, I mean, even before I, I saw you refer uh, to your mom that way in the book, I said, I remember that. Zig always talked about the redhead back home. I get the impression that, that your dad was very involved in the family life in spite of the fact that he did a lot of traveling. So I have to wonder then, uh, was that an illusion or did you really have to work hard to keep a lot of this, what was going on in your own life, hidden from your, your parents? <laughs> I had to work hard, Craig. Uh, Daddy, when Daddy was home, he was fully home and fully involved and fully aware of, uh, you know, what was going on. I just, most really, most of my shenanigans happened while he was on the road. Uh, because he was a lot more perceptive about worldly things than my mother. And my mother was very busy raising, uh, uh, my brother was born almost 10 years after me and she was keeping up with him. I mean, he was toddler and, you know, three and four and five, that busy age when I was going through that worst teenage stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was distracted. But when daddy was home, I mean, if a young man called me for a date on Friday for Saturday night, he wouldn't allow me to go because he said they waited too late. That I was their second choice, and he wasn't going to let me go. He was, a, you know, he was strict in in that regard. But unfortunately, he did travel, you know, a great deal, and and that's when I that's when I was out. See, I worked, and I started working when I was fourteen, and I always got out of school early, and then I would usually hang out, you know, after work was really over, and that's when I met older boys and and uh, started you know, just getting involved in stuff I really shouldn't be. 
If you've just joined the conversation tonight, we're visiting with Julie Ziegler-Norman. She is the youngest daughter of Zig Ziegler, and I suspect a lot of you remember Zig from the books and the traveling and the, the speaking engagements that he had here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Certainly one of my favorite guests down through the years, and that's why I say, And when I first read the book, I thought, my goodness, boy, this is an eye-opener. So growing up as the, the daughter of Zig Ziegler is not guaranteed right attitude or right choices, and I guess in the end, the important lesson that all of us here have to learn is we have to be accountable singularly and directly to God. Even if we have a famous daddy or mom or we're a pastor's kid, we are uniquely responsible for the choices that we make. Back to more of our conversation with Julie Ziegler in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with Julie Ziegler-Norman. She is the youngest daughter of motivational speaker and best-selling author Zig Ziegler. A new book out called Growing Up Ziegler, A Daughter's Broken Journey from Heartache to Hope. You know, we're talking about that issue of choice. As you mentioned earlier on, and I want, don't want to give the whole plot away here, <laughs> Julie, but you mentioned early on in the book that one of the first wrong choices you made was at the age of 18 you'd met up a guy that had a a, a mutual interest uh in horses right Uh, and certainly can can relate to that i'm a big horse fan myself uh but you you ended up marrying this guy whom not long after the the i guess the ink was still drying on the license you found out that he was significantly older than you thought you were 18 he was 36 and then later on you found out about the four kids by three previous marriages wow there's a start for you yeah it's pretty shocking and um my dad had him investigated after we were married. He, you know, he tried very hard to stop the marriage, but by that point, Craig, I had been living, uh, you know, in such sexual sin. I really believed that if I got married, uh, that that would take me out of that realm of sinning and that then I could maybe get right with God. Uh, that was part of it. And I had secretly lived with this man, which was totally against, you know, what I had been taught and raised to do. And I felt like in my, in my little, um, uneducated mind, because my dad wasn't a Christian when I was growing up. I was 17, almost 17, uh, when he finally became a Christian. I missed the biblical training and time in church. We went a little bit, but not enough to, to have any impact on me. But uh, I really, because of my experience with Bill Gothard, I, I knew that I shouldn't be doing that. I didn't want to do it. I didn't know how not to do it. And so I thought, you know, if I marry this man, then I can make it right. And um, even when Dad called with the facts and the truth, this man was really... Um, um, you know, a total horse trader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pun intended, yeah. In every sense, um, I felt like I'd married him and I needed to do what I could to make it work and honor that commitment. And in the end, when it became, you know, physically violent and there was also some evidence that he had been unfaithful, um, truly it was, by that time, I was so beaten down. Uh, he told me I was, stupid and unattractive and you know I always believe what other people told me not what my dad told me and uh, by the time I left him it was because when he picked me up to um, beat me I almost dropped our baby on the floor and I cared enough about her even though I didn't care enough about me to to leave 
and it's and that's that's what caused that break was uh he was jealous of the baby and the division of attention and and i um something awoke in me uh, when when i almost dropped the baby and and that's when i left but ironically you you went out of that bad relationship kind of out of the frying pan into the fire Yes. Now, mm-hmm. while, while God has been gracious in bringing restoration and healing, and I understand your current marriage, what, 28-plus years, am I right, or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, but but you all actually had something in common with your, your, your current second husband, too, in that as much as the first one was all in the equestrian style, this had more to do with mixed cocktails. <laughs> yes, I had no idea that part of the great attraction was I'd finally met a man who could afford to buy me as many drinks as I actually wanted and uh, you know I just uh, by then I had buried a lot of my shame and my uh, depression and regret in alcohol because I didn't know what to do with negative feelings and uh, actually had trouble identifying what sad meant at one point but but I used alcohol as a way to cope and when I met my present husband, uh, he he liked his drink too, and we spent the first two and a half years of our marriage uh, kind of drinking at each other mm. until he finally got to a point where I'd had enough, and um, I went to a twelve-step program for people who are friends and family of alcoholics, and it was there that I learned I had my own problem yeah. that I needed to deal with. You, you said something a moment ago, Julie. Let me let me take you back. You, you, you okay. said that you, you listened to what others had to say about you yeah. more than you did your father. And I want to have you expand upon that because, you know, I, I, I often now joke with my own father now that mm-hmm. I'm uh, well into my, uh, well, I'm... I'm well into my years, <laughs> but I, I've, I've, I've said to dad when conversations about, you know, uh, the wild and woolly days come up, I said, you know, it's amazing. The older I've gotten, how smart you've gotten. Yeah. Isn't it true? When we're younger, we just think we've got all the answers and our parents are incredibly stupid. And what would they possibly know? And then as we grow older and mature and marry and have kids and go through our own life experiences, suddenly we realize, you know, mom and dad weren't so dumb after all. But talk to me a bit about that perspective where you said that well, you, you listened you know, more to others than your dad when it came to talking about you. I did, and it started real early. It started with me knowing that teachers, you know, teachers told them that not to expect, expect much of me academically. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, I was a little ADD or something, had some learning issues, and they just told my parents, don't expect too much of Julie. So I wasn't required to make A's and B's. You know, like my sisters, uh, because they'd been told not to expect much. And I lived all the way down to those expectations. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I was in the, I was the yellow bird reader. I wasn't the blue bird who was top or the red bird who was next. I was the yellow bird who was last. And all of those little, you know, defining things um, had an effect on me. And I had a girl tell me in eighth grade, I think I was on the bus, she said, boy, you're dense. And I went home and looked it up. And from then on, I was afraid to open my mouth because I was afraid somebody would make a judgment about how smart I was. And um, just things like that fed into me because I believe that my father told me nice and encouraging things because he loved me he couldn't see me for who i really was and uh you know isn't that what he does is he encourages people and i wasn't sure it was genuine 
I mean, I thought those things couldn't possibly be true about me because I knew what thoughts went on in my own head. And I had I had a lot of self-loathing because of the choices I was making and what I knew to be true about me that he didn't know. Funny how much of that, Julie, is so much like our relationship with the Lord that we would tend to rather believe the bad press and the negative thoughts and the junk that either we gets fed to us by others or by the media or by the devil himself and not want to believe what God believes about us, that he sees us not as we are but as we can be and would be perfected in him. It's, that's right, and that's how Satan really gets gets the upper hand, is uh, he continues. I mean, we have a saying in the 12-step program, you know, your mind is like a, a, a bad neighborhood. You should never go there alone. And and you, we, the, the thinking that we get ourselves into a wad with is really not at all what Christ would have us think. And, uh, and, and until you actually get into the Word yourself, for yourself, and you learn the character of God and what He wants for us, you can't think otherwise. I mean, I pray every day for God to give me wisdom and knowledge and the power to carry it out. You know, help me to see that wisdom. Give me the knowledge. Give me the power, Lord, to carry, to carry this out, to carry it forward, because I certainly can't do it. And that's, that's why I'm so free in Christ today, is because I finally know his character and know what he wants for me and from me. You know, I know what my purpose is uh, as one of his, and that freedom is really why I wrote the book is I wrote the book for people who are sick and tired of living with the consequences of their choices, and especially for the Christian who sits in church, who uh, has been forgiven and they know it, and yet they won't share any of their past because of shame they shouldn't even have anymore. And And it's amazing, it's amazing, Julie, the way so often we, we can't, we can't come to the point of understanding our purpose in life until we understand his purpose for us. That's right. And and it all has to do, Craig, with being available, willing, and obedient to do whatever he puts in front of you. And when you've surrendered your life to that point where you care more about what he wants than what you want, that's when you become totally free and the shame leaves the depression leaves. Uh, there's just no more fear and there's no more worry once you really hand it over to him. But that fear of letting go and what he might demand of you, uh, it's pretty overwhelming. And then when you get over that hump, you go, oh my goodness, you know, what was, what was I concerned about? His care for me is so much greater than anything I could have thought of for myself. If you've just joined into the conversation here tonight, we're visiting with Julie Ziegler-Norman. Yes, the same Ziegler that you know and love, the youngest daughter of Zig Ziegler, the wildly popular motivational speaker, best-selling author. She's written a new book called Growing Up Ziegler, A Daughter's Broken Journey from Heartache to Hope. It really is a unique story and one that ought to catch the attention of all of us. I mean, for the PKs in the audience, you know, just because dad is famous or very successful in the pulpit ministry doesn't mean that your life is going to turn out picture perfect because it all comes down to the choices that you make as an individual, that we all make as an individual. How do we develop the right attitude? How do we make the right choices? Uh, We'll talk a bit more about that and we'll come back and talk about the challenge list as well. That is our conversation with Julie Ziegler-Norman continues here on this edition of Lifeline. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.